Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm, I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. This is our first episode proper of 2021. Robin and Josie joined by Alan Davies, the author, actor, comedian and most definitely broadcaster. Robin's actually going to do all the admin this week. Uh, Let you know about lots of exciting things we've got coming up on the Cosmic Shambles network. But before that, I just wanted to let you know that this episode does contain... A lot of discussion, especially in the first half, around the subject of abuse. So we just wanted to flag that up before the episode gets started. So for this week, I hand over my admin duties to Mr. Robin Ince. Hello. Before Book Shambles start, I just thought I'd tell you about a couple of things coming up on Cosmic Shambles. Coming soon, or it might not be coming soon, it might have just come out by the time you listen to this, is a new episode of our Uncanny Hour series. And this time it's about Deathline, famous cult 1972 movie. And I speak to various people, including the director, Gary Sherman, and uh, also Rhys Shearsmith, who uh, I once screened the film with at the Phoenix in Finchley. And also coming up is a series of Cosmic Conversations, in which I talk to scientists, astronauts, poets and others about finding meaning and purpose in the universe and looking at the beauty of the universe and that's going to include people like Sarah Parkak and Nicole Stott, Andrean, Brian Green, Tim Minchin and many others. So that's going to be starting towards the end of January and all these things are available for our Patreon supporters. So if you are a Patreon supporter, thank you very much. It makes it possible for us to make more and more shows. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. How are you, Josie? I'm good, thank you. I, you'll be thrilled to know that I've been celebrating the new year by just reading every day and tra- like getting back in to enjoying reading. And uh, I, I already feel like I've achieved incredible amounts just by doing some reading. <laughs> what, what's been your one that you have uh, particularly, of, of the things you picked up, you were talking before about, it wasn't wintering, what's the new book that you've been reading about? So uh, I've ed- finished it now, it's called Educated, it's by Tara Westover, I absolutely loved it. Um, it's a memoir about um, a woman who grew up in a fundamentalist prepper Mormon household and then kind of by a very elaborate route went to university and ended up an academic and kind of how her identity changed and how she reckoned with uh, the difficult parts of her upbringing and stuff like that. But what I loved about it was the writing was beautiful. It was lyrical and succinct and poetic. And maybe it's a case of, you know, if you're thirsty and then you drink, the water tastes incredible. But at the same time, I was like, this is the best book I've ever read. It's incredible. See, I always have that. I know we talked about this before with novels because a lot of what I read is non-fiction. Just yeah. for not because I don't want to read novels, just because of Research. researching for work yeah. and stuff. And the first novel back, I always go, "This is the greatest thing ever." <laughs> and then about halfway through, I quite often go, "Oh, the story's not very good." I was so excited <laughs> about reading the description of the childhood trifle and the dusk and that possible murder and all the rumours, and then it turns not very good. And then I've always gone on social. 
media and gone, I'm just reading this amazing book. And then I have to think, just just don't mention it again. It's, yes, it's, it's, it's a big thing to come out guns blazing in support of something that you've not yet finished. Because there can always be a twist. I remember I was watching a film with um, uh, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and someone and they have to go undercover uh, in Wyoming on the witness protection. Hugh Grant. It was when we were going through a Hugh Grant phase. And um, the film was totally fine, but the last line of it was really offensive, needlessly. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm really glad I wasn't tweeting, like, just before the end of this. Like, this is great. Because, like, the last line, I was like, guys, what? And it really sullied it. And I was like, that, that is a real (laughs) lesson. Not to yeah, I, I did an interview with an, uh, a while ago with someone that I was so excited about reading their book, and I said we must interview them. And uh, then I read the second half, and I went, "Oh God, oh no, they, oh dear." Anyway, it never went out. So uh, fortunately, <laughs> this is not true. You watch this segue in action uh, about our guest today, whose um, whose book "Just Ignore Him," which came out in two thousand and twenty, um, is 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 a really great piece of work. It is, it is beautifully written. And it is, uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you very much about it. We might not actually talk very much about it. I just want to say that it is one of my books of uh, of, of 2020. And I'm, I'm really glad that I read it. But we're joined by Alan Davis. Um, hello, Alan. Hi, Robin. Hi, Josie. Hi. Thank you so much for those kind words, Robin. That's really, I'm actually genuinely touched. I, don't, I really am greatly appreciative of all kind words about my book. It was an enormous effort of kind of a will to write about it uh, the events of my childhood the more traumatic and difficult events and I'm so gratified that people are picking it up and reading it and getting back to me and talking to me about what I've written about and what happened and what I've you know the steps I've taken later in life to try and uh, address what happened to me as a boy so thank you I appreciate that a lot well, I've seen so much online and so many positive things that were in the press as well, and the kind of round yeah, end of the year roundup things about uh, books, and it and it does seem it's it's a really you know such an, an important thing I think with many of my favourite books are books which in many different ways sometimes it might be about the universe sometimes it might be about human behavior sometimes it might be about childhood so many different things but they they not only offer you a different perspective and change your viewpoint but you realize that for a lot of people they become something of of of, of a life belt they become i mean i think that's part of the the beautiful thing the beautiful possibilities of comedy because there's no divide because when we are able to tour you can just go out there and you can talk about what you want there is a freedom um until they really start booing or saying this is very very boring obviously there's still the freedom to continue the ticket sales will continue to go down yeah they can torpedo the shows and the ticket sales into the ground and that's their right (laughs) but that is but that's what i love is it really it, it can be such a useful thing when you can stand on stage and it doesn't matter what you talk, but there is a moment where not just that oh I do that when I go to Waitrose too mm. there can be another moment where someone talks about something in their life and they go and people sit there and go oh I thought I was the only one that had that thought you know sometimes about paranoia and anxiety and all of those and, and the, the the freedom that having that direct connection with someone I think well, is really important the, all of that's very true of course and uh but the subject matter of my book, which is about which is a book about abuse largely, it's a book about bereavement and abuse and about coming to terms with those things. And I these and 
I just wasn't able to access those stories and that part of my life for stand-up comedy. And I'd gone yeah. through 30 years of thoroughly enjoying being a stand-up comedian. It's been a fantastic career choice for me. I've loved being on stage. I love the audiences of, you know, thinking of something funny and hearing that laugh. You both know what it feels like. It's a joy. And uh, I haven't actually been able to get to the stuff inside, the darker stuff. I haven't been able to address it. Stand-up is something of a superficial medium, and this is more of an archaeological dig. This is stand-up deals with the topsoil. It deals with the view around that we can all share. And this deals with getting under the topsoil and digging around and exposing what was there that the topsoil is sitting on. I'm going to keep this metaphor going for a half an hour. <laughs> but so that I couldn't get to it and I couldn't get to it until I was ready, firstly, I think. And I wasn't ready till I was gone, gone 50. I wasn't ready till I had children of my own who made me think more about being a boy and seeing my boy now, age nine, which is the age I was when I started to be abused. And I, and I was very, it was hugely challenging for me to talk about what happened when I was a child and how I was going to control that. And the book was the best way. And then the publisher said, if we do a, a couple of interviews to launch the book, um, that will really get the ball rolling. That will stop it sinking without traces. Some books, as you know, sometimes do. They, they just never get like a turtle. They never get from the beach to the water. And... And I said, okay, but I don't, want to, I don't want you to have any spoilers about what happens in the book, particularly about abuse. I don't want to talk about that. Uh, and, of course, both interviews wanted to do that. They wanted mm -hmm. to be the one. One was in the UK and one was in Australia, and they wanted to be the, the, the publication that broke that story, uh, that this well-known television face has got this past that no one knows about, and we're going to be the ones who break it. And that really broke my heart. I felt very betrayed because I really had gone into those interviews on that under on that understanding. But subsequently, I've become more robust about talking about it. And one of the reasons that I feel that way is because I go occasionally onto the, uh, you know, to the what I call the dark web, or, or the, which is also known as the Amazon website. And I look at my, <laughs> look at my book and I, I looked on there one day and it said my book was number one in uh, child abuse biographies. And so... <laughs> <laughs> and it That's was where you go. funnily enough it was vying for the number one position with the book Josie that you were just talking about educated so which is a huge bestseller and a wonderful book um so I thought oh well this really the, the cat is out of the bag I've written a book about it I'm number one in child abuse it's a coveted slot I shouldn't be ungrateful <laughs> it's I, so I, weird <laughs> you just don't want to go to them guys refine your categories refine your categories but at the same time I was also number five in the top 10 opera singers biographies and the other nine people in the top 10 were also comedians or actors so I, I think the opera singers must be furious oh. we were talking about that because when, when my book was recently put on kind of Kindle offer I was kind of going oh right so today I'm number one in developmental psychology uh, art criticism and jokes and riddles and I don't feel I've covered as much ground as these chart topping moments would suggest um, <laughs> jokes and riddles isn't not that charming? Yeah, it's me and Richard skits. Herring always fighting it out in the jokes and riddles. <laughs> I bet you people who devote their lives to writing compendiums of riddles. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's not a single riddle in there. I mean, not the riddle is it. why he wrote the book in the first place. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Ridley. Um, the, uh, I was, uh, one of the things that I, I found particularly impressive about the book is that a lot of it does read 
in a good way, like a kind of very nicely observed 70s memoir. I think that's one of the things that is... So you're reading about a kind of world of, you know, almost of toast toppers and frisbees, if you see what I mean. And then within that, you... And, and that's what I think is is you telling the story of, 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 of the abuse and also the loss of your mother. And, and I think that's one of the things that I found most in, in, impressive about it, is it connects immediately because you're going, this is the life that... And, and so anyone reading it, who has not had those experiences what they are doing is going oh yeah I do remember that bit and I do remember that bit in my life and we were having toast toppers and we were watching those shows on the telly and I thought that was one of the things because sometimes you can read books that are dealing with issues like this and you are it's almost as if it's alien territory this is what's happened to this person Mm -hmm. it's something that only happens in this world whereas I thought you very beautiful you you create the normal childhood world which then has some what we hope are very abnormal uh, things in them no, I appreciate that observation, and I do feel strongly that there's a normality about what happened to me. It's verging on commonplace, and the amount of people that I know, I mean, at least half a dozen people that I know personally, either friends or colleagues from work, have approached me and said similar things happened to them um, since the book was published. And there's a website that I've been to many times called oneinsix.org, which is about uh, men who've been abused men and boys have been abused and one in six isn't a made-up number one in six is a number they've arrived at through uh, research it's alarming how commonplace these experiences are and it's alarming when I go on social media I rejoined Twitter um, largely because I was up for engaging with people who read the book slightly nervously wondering if we, how it would go but actually it's been a place where people have been able to contact me and say your story resonates with me uh, thank you for writing it and when we talked earlier about being on stage and talking to the audience and I've never been able to say by the way audience I've loved talking to you tonight and we've shared lots of things something really not so funny that I want to talk to you about I've never been able to do it yeah. And I felt sure that if I'm in a theatre, say, with a thousand people, if I said, put your hands up if anything like that happened to you, that hands would go up. Mm-hmm. Hands would go up in every venue, in every town that I've ever played in 30 years, in every country that I've ever played in, hands would go up. And the idea that someone would allow you to put your hand up and just to say, just to connect and have that look you in the eye and, you know, sometimes all you need is a wave or a thumbs up. You know, we're, here, we're all here, alive, functioning doing gigs, going to gigs, it's okay to put your hand up. You don't have to always keep your hand down, you know. Mm-hmm. And I never felt, I never had the courage to do that. So it's an amazing thing. There's a lot of negative things about social media, of course, but there is an amazing thing about that, being able to connect with people yeah. with sincerity and truthfulness. Um, it's not just about, you know, anger. There's a lot of anger on there, but it's not all that. And to find each other as well. Like I think in the past, people wouldn't have been able to know where to look, let alone kind of make those kind of networks in a positive way, not in a negative way. I think way. that's very true. You know, one of the interesting things about social media is if someone posts, as people sometimes do, particularly in this strange year of lockdown and pandemic, if someone posts, I'm feeling terrible today, I feel really low, I don't know what's wrong with me, is anyone else feeling this? They will get so many responses. Mm. They'll get flooded with responses, you know. And that's this kind of the good side of human nature is 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 something that's there to react, to mm. respond, to go towards someone who asks for help. 
But it's difficult to go on social media and say, uh, I'm here ready to help anyone. If anyone needs helping today, that's not how it works. Yeah. It's a funny thing about human nature. You've got to ask for help. And you have to remember that people like to be asked. They actually mm. like it. You people know, are desperate old, to be they asked. They really like it. They do. If the little old lady says, will you help me across the road? No one ever says no, do they? I tell you, it is the <laughs> highlight of my life when I'm able to give someone directions on the street. It's like, I feel like it's my time to shine. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> If I see someone, or the here's the absolute best: if it's French tourists and I get to give the advice in French, honestly. <laughs> when I started on my book, I started it writing at Goldsmiths College. I did an MA in creative write, creative and life writing at Goldsmiths, and I didn't want to write a vengeful, angry book. Mm. I couldn't write about the subject matter at all at first. I began writing it in the third person. I began writing it in novel form. I became very interested in books where, where like the Edward St. Aubyn's Patrick Melrose novels, where someone had fictionalised their life to try mm. and get it out. And actually what I really needed to do and what I was encouraged to do was, having established a, a comic voice over so many years, was to try and use that comic voice, but going into areas that I hadn't got to before. Mm. And I was more kind of able to do that subsequently. Uh, initially, it was quite a difficult process. I lost my, slightly lost my thread. I can't remember what No, I, well, I'd love to ask more about that Cut in that. terms of... <laughs> no, um, how long ago did you do your MA and how I, did that writing style develop? Like, what sort of uh, length of time did it take you to go from that to where you are now? Well, to having written the book? I started on the MA in 2016 it was two year part time course so I go to Goldsmiths on a Wednesday and uh, that became the, my favourite day of the week mm. um, I had three small children at home one very small who was born in 2015 and and I needed some outlet and I needed also I felt like there's some stuff that wasn't addressed that was causing a problem for Katie and I at mm. home and, and and I watching the children grow up was triggering all kinds of things for me. And I think that's perhaps what made me get to it at last. Yeah. But it took me several months on the course to produce a bit of writing about my father, which I submitted anonymously. And then after that, I was able to more stay kind of on the subject and began to... To write and to write in an environment that was very supportive, so then you're able to workshop material and get feedback, written feedback from other students and from tutors. And I continued to send chapters to people for the year after I finished the course in 2018 until the book was finished. And and re really, there's a there's a lot in the there's a lot of acknowledgments in the book which are very sincere about people who really did help. And I I'd never really done that before i remember many years ago i wrote i read east of eden john steinbeck's oh, yeah. brilliant brilliant novel and there's another book you can buy uh, which is called journal of a novel and when steinbeck was writing east of eden he'd sharpen 12 pencils at the beginning of the day and he'd write in longhand in a ledger but before he started he'd write on the he'd write the book on the right hand page and on the left hand page he would write thoughts and he would write for 20 minutes in the morning to clear his head mm -hmm. And the journal of a novel is the left-hand pages. And when you read them, the process of writing East of Eden, which is good to read if you've just finished it, 
you read that he used to send chapters to critics, r critics that he respected, people with, you know, people with great literary knowledge, well-read people whose understanding of literature he respected, and get feedback on what he was doing. So he wasn't... It's for, for, as a stand-up comedian reading that, for, for the very idea that you, <laughs> that you would do a gig for, yeah. the, for the Voluntarily. Never... <laughs> But I found that really very interesting, and that, that kind of stayed with me for a long, long time. And I've uh, and I've never really been able to do that. But I did that with the chapters for my book. I got help. I asked for help, and I got good help. Well, I think as a stand-up, like I, I've definitely, I definitely, when I'm developing a show, would get get very trusted people to give me feedback at crucial stages and stuff like that. But it is so much more about a solitary pursuit, and you know, I mean, some people obviously have writers or writing directors and stuff but most people it's so inward so then the idea that throughout the process you're going to be that vulnerable and that collaborative is really scary i think yeah i think that's true with stand-ups and although some some people are quite scathing about comedians who use writers and i i always say to those people what have you got against writers you know these <laughs> these people want to earn a living as well and they've got some cracking material they yeah, just yeah. can't say it they just don't want to well. do it they yeah, don't yeah, want to yeah. go on the stage they're not mad they're just clever this is true i see i i have <laughs> a, true. my problem with the writers thing is not having writers it's when the writers are i think not paid enough and are also not credited not and credit. are hidden yeah. and, and i think it. there is an issue where because i i find it quite weird now with it because there's lots of people i know who have good people that they work with you know and you know about it as well there's someone I think Pete Sinclair does a lot of work with with you know various yeah, stand-ups you know and they, they sit together and they work stuff out but I do, sometimes I watch a show and I think oh this is this observation of what happened when me and my mum got in a jacuzzi has been written by a team of 12 people <laughs> and I don't even I think you know even the jacuzzi is that that's the problem I sometimes have which I think is that it's that difference between the the old style comic where you go, these are gags, gags, gags. And that bit where sometimes it feels like the whole scenario is, I remember watching one comedian and I, uh, I won't say it was because there's someone I like a great deal and they were trying <clears throat> out new stuff. And the first 10 minutes was kind of like, meh. And it, I just thought, I don't think this is them. It just doesn't sound like this is the way they live their life. And then suddenly they went on this great big rant about national trust properties. And I could see that this was the, this was their bit. They'd had a terrible time involving seeing some disappointing topiary in Dorset. And now they were going to rage about it. And it was like, it was just this nice thing of watching that bit where you go, ah, oh, this feels like this is from you and not from the writers. And I know there was another comic who used writers for a while and then realised that he, he'd become too... Because I think that's the balance, isn't it? If you become too distant and you merely become a voice of a collection of people, that's a different kind of art form almost, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think so. Well, I'm kind of in the Josie's camp. I've always done my own material and never... There's stories from the, my life. It's difficult to yeah, imagine but not, someone could understand, you know. Yeah. I'm not but being I, judgmental here. I just mean no, if you no, have done course. it on your own, it's it's more challenging. Sorry. I can't imagine doing it another way. But having said that, I think perhaps the best comedian I ever saw was Dave Allen, who was, who was so funny when I saw him in the West End in about 91, that it was physically painful to watch. I mean, your face was hurting and your ribs <laughs> were hurting. It was extraordinary. <laughs> And I was lucky enough to interview him uh, twice, and and uh, he did say to me, in all sincerity and not bragging, you have to be careful with an audience. 
you can't make them laugh too much. It's uncomfortable. You've got to back off and give them a chance. He told me once he had a guy laugh so much he broke a rib. And I believed him. But he, he got to, uh, in the 90s, having been away from television for a long time, he produced a series of stand-up shows for, I think it was for ITV. Yeah. And a lot of my contemporaries or our contemporaries were brought in to help him write material. And one of them said to me, I said, what's it like writing for Dave Allen? I said, and he goes, he hasn't used any of my stuff. And I said, well, is he looking for an actual light or, you know, a sentence for him to say out loud? Or is he just want people in the room yeah, to talk to around subject off. matter and get some, get his juices going? You know, he said, I went to see the show. I think there was this half a sentence of mine that he used. I said, well, don't be embittered about it. He needed you all there yeah. to get him going. It's got to go through his filter. Yeah. And you've contributed to you know, truly great stand-up comedy. So, you know, be grateful, you miserable. <laughs> and he was, I, I think Dave Allen's an interesting, because there's a, there's a lovely documentary where he goes around and meets various different eccentrics. I don't know if you've ever seen it, and it ends up with, um, uh, I've got Ivor Cutler, I think, pops up oh. in it. But generally, they're not kind of people who manage to turn their eccentricity into a profession. They are just people who collect weird things or build strange things. And what is beautiful about it is you can always see his incredible fascination. At no point is he thinking, oh, hang on a minute, I haven't got a gag in here. He's he's just this, and, and I think that makes a difference as well in the way you would approach writing with other people, which mm. is, I think Dave Allen, everything I've, I've read of him, and I'm a huge fan of his work, and is he was a really interesting and curious human being. Who wanted, and I always feel so sad about the fact he felt betrayed by the BBC when he did that brilliant joke about the fact that you know you, you, you live your life by the clock, and when you finally retire, they give you a fucking clock. Yes, and, yeah. and you know, which is a, a and, <clears throat> and because he said fucking, suddenly th there was a fury. Dave Allen said, it "No, but it's a really thing. great joke, and definitely a fucking clock works. Mm. That's a great punch." Oh, it was <laughs> the rhythm of that sentence because should never be altered. No, but what's interesting about him? I was lucky enough to go to his house to interview him and his house is full of art painted by him. Wow. And so he didn't, you know, he's not a, we were, he's a conscious of being on a book podcast and I'm still about stand-up comedy and painting, but <laughs> it, he, that was his outlet. That was his creativity was painting, painting, painting and beautiful. A very talented artist, all the walls covered in it. He still needed something you know the, the stand-up he wasn't i suppose he gets to his 60s do you want to be doing 200 gigs a year no yeah. <laughs> and wow. also his may your god go with you is a great what a great <coughs> line to uh, i think that's right isn't it that was yes may your god go with you well yeah. he had to tread a fine and a delicate line doing stand-up comedy about the church doing stand-up comedy about anything to do with ireland in the 70s and the height of the troubles sure. to cross the divide to be funny to both sides to all people the sensitivity and the intelligence he had was remarkable yeah although he did anger the catholic church which was easily done i think it is amazing when you watch some of those routines which almost seem benign now that's the yeah. trouble isn't it but you can go back and people think oh it doesn't seem as sweary as you know lenny bruce or whatever you go no 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 this stuff on mainstream prime time saturday <laughs> night is uh, well that's what i know because we haven't talked enough about books if you could very quickly tell me your 20 favorite books no it's um 25 the, uh, in yeah. order <laughs> but your your book which i think is now called teenage revolution uh, but it wasn't originally, was it? it yes, was called... I wrote a book called... Well, I wrote. I wanted to call it My Favourite People, and this was 10 years ago, 
uh, my favourite people, 1978 to 88. And the reason I did that was because I, th- I felt at the time that, and I still feel that, that who you're into, what you like, be it music or authors or comedians or whatever it is, changes every year, really, when you're a, ch- when you're a kid. You, mm. You're so subjected to new things. Everything's new. You, you think the Blues Brothers is the greatest thing that's ever been made for three months, and then another film appears. <laughs> and so and I thought, <clears throat> and, and also I felt that when you ask people, what's your favourite book, what's your favourite band, what's your favourite film, they very often say something that they encountered when they were a teenager or in their early 20s. You kind of, you start off like very malleable and then you set. And so I, I wanted to get into that somehow. And I wrote... Uh, I, I avoided all of the subject matter of just ignore him. I, I wrote about my teenage life, my mother passing away, all so much about my life, but kept deflecting it and going to talk about other people rather than get into the, the heart of the matter, which I've got to in my more recent book. But then what happened was we uh, made three programmes for Channel 4 sort of based on the book, where I got to interview some of the people I talk about in the book, like Billy Bragg, for example, and Neil Kinnock. And they called that series... Teenage Revolution. So when Penguin published the paperback, they called the paperback Teenage Revolution. And but fortunately, only about nine people bought the hardback, so it didn't cause too much confusion. <laughs> Most people were just very <clears throat> grateful to have it. Do you know what I mean? They're just <laughs> there was no problem. I, I, think, really I know two people who bought both books and got a bit annoyed with me. <laughs> yeah, I saw those Amazon reviews actually. I'm yeah, re- uh, happy to refund you. The um, but that, it's, it's a lovely book. I, re- I mean, I, I read it probably when it came out. and it's. Uh, um, but I, I was interested, one of the things, because obviously, basically it's a book about, I, I suppose, summing up, it's Debbie, Harry, uh, the young ones, and Arthur Scargill. They're your favourite people, aren't they? So that, 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 that's the calendar on your wall in, uh, in 1985. Um, but it is sometimes all, all of them together. It's a, it's a very rare shot you can get. Um, but I, the um, painting of them all playing poker. Yeah. <laughs> Probably playing pool. <laughs> it's, it's like that. Who is it? There's, there's a picture of Alan Moore uh, with, I think it's Alvin Stardust and Cliff Richard or something. Because he was, I think I might have got that. But it, it's, it's a group similar to that. It's because he was on a Saturday morning kids show when Alan was kind of, you know, everyone was just going, oh my God, comics are the greatest thing. And he is, of course, the greatest comic writer anyway. Uh, and uh, and so he would find himself with these very straight, for a countercultural icon dealing with the things he was dealing with in V for Vendetta, etc. Uh, you know, it's uh, a little bit closer, Alvin a little bit closer um but that one of the things is you you talk about Woody Allen books and I remember the I think Without Feathers might have been my my first mm-hmm. uh Woody Allen book love it I'm kind of do you now have a, 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 that issue where you know that the artist and the human being does that ever come into it now when you look because I was thinking particularly I, I sometimes look at some of my Woody Allen books and go it's harder to read them now Hmm. Um, and not necessarily about Woody Allen, but do you find that? Well, that gap- I think specifically about Woody Allen. It depends if you believe the allegation or if you're satisfied that the allegation was investigated and found to be untrue. I mean, you're talking to someone who's profoundly on the side of the child hmm. and will believe the child. Um, but uh, having said that, he, that was an allegation that was thoroughly investigated and found to be untrue. And I feel. <clears throat> sorry, saddened that he somehow gets swept into a pot with Weinstein and Cosby and serial rapists. And uh, I don't I, I don't know the truth of all the stories about what's supposed to have happened. I've read virtually every word I can find 
from you know the other adopted children and Mia Farrow's other children and uh, I found some of the responses to him and people publicly denouncing him a bit unpleasant um, and I've and I for me it's been a real struggle because he's my great comic hero he's my absolute favorite comedian filmmaker comic prose especially comic prose there's nobody as funny as him I could, the only person I can think of is Clive James's uh, unreliable memoirs, his first volume of memoir, which is so hysterically funny. But it's very hard to find really funny prose. And I was 17 years old and I found, I think it was Getting Even, the first one I got, or was it Side Effects? I can't remember anyway. In a bookshop, just picked it up. No internet. You can't think, oh, I like that comedian. I'll Google them and see what their output's been over the years. You just came across it. Then I found his double album of stand-up in a second-hand record shop and couldn't believe I'd come across it, didn't know it existed. Played it and played it to death. Um, and some of his films, I think Broadway Danny Rose is my favourite film ever. Um, I remember talking to Mark Lamar late into the night who told, told me that you need to revisit Radio Days. <laughs> and, uh, and I did, and it's fantastic. So I, I really struggle with the, him being kind of cancelled. I struggle with cancel culture. Um, I'm not so much in the, in the camp of, you know, let's not judge a person by their worst mistake, but I am cautious about whether that mistake was ever made or not. And it's so, it's a very difficult one for me. I really find it very difficult. Say it ain't so is... Uh, it's the famous line said to Shoeless Joe Jackson when he, you know, when the Chicago White Sox took the money and threw the World Series, and he was a kind of innocent farm boy, really, from the South that couldn't read, and but it was a natural genius, and he took the money and got caught up in the scandal, and uh, he's 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 one who features in the film Field of Dreams, which is based on one of my favourite novels, which is called Shoeless Joe, and. Uh, the kid said to him famously, "Say it ain't so, Joe." And uh, it's when your your idol, your hero, makes a mistake, and so that's how I feel about Woody Allen. Say, say it ain't so, but of course he said yeah, it ain't I... so, and it's been investigated, and people have you know places of authority and considerable power and investig- mm. have said it ain't so. So what do you do with that? Well, I think it's one of those things where uh, when. I don't think we're ever going to be able to say with certainty uh, what happened. I I think I don't, I probably don't agree with you, but I don't have the same relationship with his work as you do. And I think it's really hard to, like exactly as you're saying, like I think it's really hard to sort of... It's very, very hard. This girl was seven years old. She remembers something happening. Um, What the memory is or how the memory survived I've certainly right in my book I've realized that memory is something that's constantly shifting and changing like the ocean mm. really and it's it's moving all the time and if you go into it what's there is changing and yeah. you know this you know you're I found that there are certain events that I remember so clearly um, but you remember things of course because you revisit them frequently mm-hmm. and, and mm. in, in my case you're re, it's revisited daily the memories and then what's around them is darkness. But you can, I found an entry point into memory, remembering events or times, you, sometimes by artifacts or single memories or moments or some emotional recollection. For example, there's one 
And my mother gave me, I remember my, we had a spud gun and my brother wouldn't <laughs> let me play with it. And, and I wanted to play with the spud gun. I could never get a go on it. And she met me from school one day and she gave me a paper bag, which I sort of vaguely recognise as the sort of paper bag that they gave out in the toy shop. And when I opened it, there was a spud gun in it. I mean, I st- <laughs> I've said to people who know me, Katie, my wife, it's no point really buying me presents. I'm not a great receiver of gifts. I don't like gifts. They panic me. And that's my father's thought because he would give me a gift and say, now this was very expensive, so you need to play with this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would think, I don't want it. <laughs> but also that combined with the fact that no one can ever match the spud gun moment for the rest of my life so don't, don't give me anything but those there are some memories and so from those memories I was able to go in and rather like in the process of psychotherapy if this memory triggers that and if that memory triggers that there's some connection there that I need to follow there's a thread into my past that I need to follow and I might be able to find something and create a chapter and this is how the chapters came to be stand alone I like the pluralised noun. I have a pluralised noun for every chapter heading. And well, some of them, are, there's one called stamps and there's one called exams and there's one called jokes where I talk about how I try and thread how I became a comedian. Oh, that that's why you knocked me off memory. the number one spot for jokes and riddles. <laughs> now I remember. <laughs> no riddles in it and there's hardly any jokes. <laughs> But that, that is it. I mean, mentioning the memory thing, I think that's one of the most disconcerting things that you, you, you find out from, from neuroscientists and, and others as well, which is that bit, which is, I suppose, one of the things we were talking about, and partly in the Woody Allen thing, is, is there is a world now where there are certain people who are tremendously dogmatic and tremendously certain. And then there's other groups of people, and I would imagine probably all three of us, uh, who do have a level of kind of doubt and scepticism. No, not me. Kind of, and you're, uh, oh, you're so wrong about that, Josie, by the way. That's one of the things. <laughs> That's one of the things that annoys people. They really believed you knew the way to the library. They've never seen anyone so convinced. To do so many, there are so many examples, aren't there, of appalling behaviour. I mean, I did a documentary. Uh, I don't know why I was asked to front it, but I was, and I was flattered to be asked. And it was about John Lennon, and it involved, you know, interviewing people who knew him and talking about him and going into his past and. Mm. And he had a lot of, he had a terrible childhood, just awful things happened, his parents splitting up, asking who he wanted to live with, his mum getting run over, and he became violent, he used to, then he acknowledged that his first wife, Cynthia, used to hit her, and Mm -hmm. there was domestic abuse. So many great heroes. John Lennon has an airport named after him and is rightly revered as someone whose contribution to the culture will last for centuries, you know, and... There are the misdemeanors of Pablo Picasso. Well, the, the, it's, it never ends, does it? So, well, I'll tell you where it does end. Often with uh, women artists too. <laughs> mm. Sorry, I'm only really kidding. But I do think that it's, it's, it is... I totally take your point that it is very, very difficult when you start examining artists, especially historically. You do find a wealth of horrific things. But I also think it's interesting and I do think it's in part how the canon of the time was built and who it left out because mm-hmm. I often think that it did leave out people whose art was equally as good but who didn't have these <laughs> despicable things as well like do you know what I mean like I don't want to sound too no, silly no, about I think it you're absolutely right and also I think when you speak about women artists or women writers or songwriters or authors as most of the great work that female artists and writers would have it was never created because yeah, there was never an, there was no opportunity for 
you know, uh, there was no room of one's own. There was mm-hmm. no opportunity. There was no patronage. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there was this a condescension and an exclusion, and a separation. And um, I have quite a lot of rage in my life. I think <laughs> I think if I was a woman, I don't know what I would be like. I mean, I think I'd be. F- beside myself the idea <laughs> that because of your gender the opportunities were denied you to own a pen and paper almost you know yeah. so so I totally uh, you know I, I don't know you. I think it's a really interesting topic and I think it's something that like it's it, it becomes more compli- complicated when it happens in real time because like when it's something that remains contested but it's happening and everyone sees it's happening then you're sort of it's not as easy or what am I trying to say if you're looking back at someone who's writing 200 years ago you can say yeah or or, you know yeah Caravaggio was a murderer but he also was a painter and you know who's to say what was worse it was hundreds of years ago whereas now I think it's a lot more like complicated well I think you're right I think but perhaps the issue really is listen the part things happened in the past we're here now and what's happening today now and what happens tomorrow and next week are things that we can have some influence on and uh, and how people behave there's a greater understanding perhaps of what's not acceptable mm. what was once thought of to be acceptable even down to slapper she's hysterical i mean really the attitudes of my father and his generation towards Towards women, towards my book is a lot of my book is anger I feel about the out and out misogyny that my mother suffered when she was ill. She was in hospital with leukemia and she was not told she was terminally ill. She wasn't told she was terminally ill because she was thought because she was a woman with three young children, she might be unable to manage those emotions. She was a, a strong individual. Everybody I know who knew her, and I, I lap up every bit of information I can gather about her, says that she was quite formidable, and she was funny, and she was smart. But she didn't get to go to university because she was a girl. And mm-hmm. when she got leukaemia and died, she wasn't told she was dying, so she couldn't make any preparations for her children. She couldn't create any memorial, even just had a little handwritten note, which I would swear to you I would carry in my pocket morning, noon, and night. There's nothing. Because she wasn't allowed to, because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. She was tr- what her treatment was just misogyny in action. I write mm-hmm. about it in the book, and I feel, in, as you can tell, I feel enraged about mm-hmm. it. So she was cremated, and her ashes were buried, and there's no mark where she is in the ground. There's nowhere to go and talk to her. You know, sometimes you just you just want to stand there and scream. You know, there's nowhere. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. And my father took control of that situation. Strangely enough, with his mother, who was of the opinion that. Um, least said soonest mended and it's one of the great mysteries of life isn't it that uh, some some women collaborate some women are what you might call collaborators and and she and she was one of those but i think there's that generational sort of curse as well of not speaking about things at all sort of i think of that kind of the generation that maybe came through the first world war and the interwar generation who just like we don't talk about things we do not talk about things that's the only way to get through is to completely bury them and ignore them and like what like what a horrendous thing that was and how that how that became the way things were done and that was reinforced as well and how Mm. you know like if there's one thing I feel I know about mental health and about relating to other human beings it's you need to talk about things (laughs) it's like 
Oh, it's brutal. It's inter- yes. I wanted to ask you about that, Alan, which is just on that. Uh, I think more and more I've I've thought about the fact that there very often the you know the further away you you move from something, the sharper it can come into focus. And as you were saying, you were fifty years old, or various other things as well. But that that to me is one of the because uh, adding to really what you're saying, Josie, that that culture which says it was all a long time ago, mm. and of course that entirely ignores you know even just the actual the harder science of the fact of the brain development that is going on that when you were dealing with what you were dealing with the loss of your mother that that is an incredibly important time of 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 development Mm. and yet we have lived in a culture which just said that was all a long time ago as opposed to i think i can't when you talk about it in the book i apologize for not remembering the exact phrase but when you talk about the fact that it you walk with it you can you cannot walk away from it it is always with you so that experience for you mm. Mm. continues to be but you you can't go oh it's f- i'm 30 years away from it now yeah. no you're not because it's come with you all the time yes that's right and i think it's important to do work on your on yourself what i write i write in the begin at the beginning of the book about how there's a kind of common notion that the past is behind you somehow mm-hmm. i mean almost sort of it's, you think of it almost literally as behind you like you have to look round to it and then for a while I thought about that. Actually, maybe it's been, the past is underneath you, like you, you know, rather like topsoil. We were saying earlier, it's it's beneath you. You're ste- you're walking on it. So if the ground's unsteady, it might be worth looking at the ground. Mm. And that I could reach down and pull up the boy I was, and pull him out of the past and hold him up and say, everyone ignored this boy and no one listened to him. So here he is. But then as I wrote about the book and I wrote the story. I thought it's not underneath me it's not behind me it's here right here now around me and I had a strong vision feeling in my mind about my mother when I was writing about her in the book that she was sitting in the in on the sofa nearby I'm not someone who believes in ghosts <laughs> um, but and I didn't look round because I knew she wasn't there <laughs> But that, for the first time in my life, was I'd really gone so far towards her in writing this book, writing about her, writing about her mother, writing about me, her son, that I'd brought her somehow into the almost a physical presence mm. in the room with me. She's here with us. All the past is here with us. And then I sort of speculated in the book that the future probably is too, if we look for it. But we're all much too busy yeah. <laughs> working on our box sets. And <laughs> listen, and I've got a lot dogs. of online chess to play. It doesn't play itself, does it? Your mother of a young, a young daughter. <laughs> oh my God, you have little time for yourself. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll send you Brian Cox's book which covers the idea of the block universe so it's got equations in it and everything to define where the past and the future are It doesn't even need to read it, you just got it there you just know it's backed up by the the equations Um, Alan, thank you it's really um, moving and uh, I feel really uh, I feel really proud and privileged that you would talk to us about these things like this because No, thank you, um, no, thank you for the opportunity Thank you so much. For, I was going to Thank mention you. one other thing, someone that I mentioned a, a, a great deal, and we would have talked about but we didn't get around to I think I sent you an email about her work, but um, Rebecca Payton, I'm just going to mention to, to people uh, here, if you get a chance, because um, some of uh, Alan's book is, well, a great deal of it, is, as he mentioned, is, is, is about the death of his, his mother, and uh, Rebecca's uh, talk from TEDx Brixton um, on dealing with loss, she lost her, her dad when she, she was six and her sister when she was uh, in her, her mid-30s, really hard 
highly recommend that to people listening. If you get a chance, go and look. TEDx Brixton, Rebecca Payton, and she also wrote uh, a, a play which you can get the transcript of called Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. She's great. We've had her on. Did, and yeah, we have, and I've, so... I've listened to that. Um, uh, there's a radio show of the Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister, isn't there? There might be, actually. I'm not sure. I hope there is. There definitely should be. Yeah. So thank you very much, Alan. And uh, thank, thank you. you it was really thank, great thanks. to talk to you. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, thanks. everyone who supports us for our Patreon. We've got loads more stuff coming up at Patreon. I'm doing a bunch of conversations with uh, astronauts and scientists and poets and stuff like that. We're doing a whole new series about the meaning and finding meaning and purpose in a universe which might not have one written into it. Uh, and that's with Tim Minchin and uh, with Andrean. And uh, today I'm doing the uh, uh, Nicole Stott, the astronaut Nicole Stott. Robin, uh, you're doing so much. It's so brilliant. Stuff. Well, because otherwise I hear the voices. The only way to stop the voices is just by doing stuff. So go and have a look at the new stuff. We've got new Uncanny Hours coming up. Reese Shearsmith and me talking about Deathline and also with the director, Gary Sherman. You love Deathline. You've talked about Deathline for about five hours of of your life. I know. It's at least, at least. You've uh, talked about Deathline more than Deathline has Deathlined. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash bookshambles gets you extended editions of each and every episode, plus access to Uncanny Hour and Cosmic Conversations and all the other stuff Robin has mentioned there. We understand things are tough for everyone right now, so if you can't support uh, financially, you can just go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show five stars, and that really helps us out as well. See you next week. Stay home, take care, stay safe. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.